Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Essie Adujan, whose latest novel is Washington Black. Earlier novels, Half-Blood Blues and The Second Life of Samuel Tyne, nonfiction book in there, Dreaming of Elsewhere. That's a collection of essays, correct? It's more like one long extended essay. Washington Black, it's a historical novel, and it's the story of a young slave in Barbados in 1830 who winds up becoming a free man in the course of the book. And I understand the origins of the book are very different from the final result. They involve something called the Tishhorn Claimants which was a story that took place in England. Let's go back further than that. How did you find out about the Tishhorn claimants? And when you were looking at the subject, what drew you to write a novel about it? The Tishhorn claimant trials were it's a very infamous series of trials from the 1860s and 1870s in England. I initially came across the story because I had been reading the collected works of Jorge Luis Borges. And he has a story called, um, I think it's called The Improbable Impostor Tom Castro, discussing a few of the details of of this, these cases. And I thought that he had completely made everything up, only to discover, uh, I was reading a nonfiction book, and there was a very glancing reference to the trial. And then I thought, oh my goodness, this was actually something that happened. So I did some digging around and discovered that the gist of the trials was essentially the scion of a very wealthy family from the south of England. He was shipwrecked at sea, so there were no survivors. He was presumed dead. Uh, But his mother, uh, who was a very doting kind of mother, his mother refused to believe that he had died. So what she did was she put notices in newspapers all around the world looking for him. And a few years later, she received a reply from Australia, uh, from a town called Wagga Wagga, something to the effect of, you know, mother, it's me. I've been living in Australia for several years under an assumed name, Tom Castro, because I don't want anybody to know that I'm a, you know, a wealthy man and I'm willing to come home now. And I'm, I'm really desirous to, of coming home and taking up the helm of the family estates and really, you know, assuming my inheritance. And she was delighted. She thought it had to be him. But just in case it wasn't him, she decided to send down a member from the Tichborn household who would have known him very well as a, a young man to make the identification. And the person she chose to do this was a man called Andrew Bogle. And he was an ex-slave who had been stolen off a plantation in the Caribbean by a member of the Tichborn household who had been visiting a friend who was a planter and then taken a liking to him and just stolen him away. And so while I was writing all of this in a first draft and trying to sort through sort of the many twists and turns of the case, 
I realized that I was most interested in the psychology of somebody like Andrew Bogle uh, without dealing with all of the machinations of the trial. So I was mostly curious about the fact that this is somebody who had been born and raised on, on a plantation, had known nothing but you know a very brutal life. It would have felt very predetermined uh, that your life was going to be brief and you would die on this plantation. Uh, and then you know to be suddenly taken out of that life and put into a place that was so different from everything he'd known. You know, I was curious about what, what that would do to somebody psychologically. And that's where the character of Washington Black was born. And at that point, you were still thinking of using the template, or suddenly you kind of figured at that point, nope? I feel like I, I worked through a whole first draft trying to use parts of the template, and it didn't really hang together so well. So then I just abandoned all of that and, and started afresh. A curious fact of Washington Black, the main character, is that he's so young, eight or 11, somewhere in there, when the book opens. Had he always been that young? A kid. Yeah, yeah. He's not entirely sure of what his exact age is, right. so he thinks he's about 11. And then at the close of the book, he's 18. In the that original draft, was he that young as well? I think he was older, actually. That's a good question. So he was slightly older. He certainly wasn't a man because uh, that would have completely changed the tenor of the whole story. When you made him that young, was that because you'd come up with the idea of, of how he gets out the cloud cover and his benefactor, Tish? No, it just seemed like all of the material was was angling towards him being younger. The texture of his voice and the nature of the, the interactions with Titch, it just felt like this was a, this was a boy. The voice itself of the book is very 19th century, and I guess that was pretty deliberate to make it sound like a book that would have been written in the 1840s. Yeah, absolutely. I'm somebody who, you know, was very into reading Victorian literature when I was in my 20s, and just the texture of those different voices, I guess formality of voice, it was very attractive to me and presented a challenge, especially after having you know, come off of writing a book about jazz that was very much the opposite. Here's a challenge to write something that kind of duplicates this very um, formal 19th century voice. So you have your character. You need him to escape because you want to explore what that is like. That meant you needed to do research on how bad Barbados was. Mm -hmm. And I guess you settled on Barbados because it was so bad. I settled on Barbados, I guess, not because it was so bad, but because that's where my research led me. There was a very specific book in which, um, I can't remember the writer's name, but it was essentially a family history because her English ancestors had gone over there and, and been planters, some of the first planters on the island. And so she has very, very particular descriptions of what it was like to build a plantation and clear the land and, and what that life looked like for the planter. And so that was fascinating to me, these, these very particular details. It was incredibly brutal. Mm -hmm. I assume that that's in the research you did. The slaves were talked about in your book as if they were animals, cubs. Mm -hmm. That was the dialogue. That was what you found in your research. That's correct. Were you a little bit shocked by that? <laughs> I was shocked. When I was writing it, I was very concerned about, you know, not having anything in the book that didn't come from my research in terms of quotidian life of a slave in Barbados. So um, all of the punishments were taken from the historical record. 
I was shocked. I mean, I was, I guess I was shocked by the, the sort of horrific creativity that some people brought to bear upon the bodies of other people. Like just how grotesque some of the punishments were. It was just astonishing. Essie Odujan, he's in Barbados. He's going to get out of Barbados. You know where he's going to go. How much of his various travels did you know? Or were you just writing it going, oh, he's going to go here and, oh, this is a place for him to go? I think when you're doing a first draft, you don't know where any of the book is going to go. And you're just feeling your way through and you're trying on different things. But, you know, draft after draft, when you're kind of conceiving what are some of the themes that I'm trying to deal with? Or what are, what's the central concern of the book, which is him searching for some measure of freedom, uh, but him having to define what that freedom is before he can try and achieve it. So him moving through these different places in the world, I mean, each was very specifically chosen, but just the very act of him moving through them was very important to me because it it speaks to his rootlessness, that he's constantly seeking out a place where he can feel at home and um, live out his ideas of, of what it means to be free. He's not quite comfortable anywhere. He's always moving. He's always shifting. And I think that by the time we've gotten to the end of the book, you have a sense that, you know, he probably hasn't found his place in the world, but he's at least now aware of this instinct in, in himself to keep moving and how that's maybe not what he most needs to to feel free and, and at home in the world. At what point did you feel you understood the character well enough so that if you were to say, I want you to do this, and in a sense the character speaks to you and says, I can't do that, I have to do something else, at what point in the writing did that become clear? I think fairly early on. I'm somebody who writes by feeling my way through a text draft an outline at the beginning of, of every book, but I know that I'll never stick to the outline. The book won't look anything like what I've written down. It's just a process that I have to go through to, I think, mentally start the book. But you just let your characters, I guess, move where they need to move um, and go where they need to go. And, you know, if in the end that doesn't work out, then you edit it out and you try something new. Is there any point where he kind of surprised you I mean, that's the sort of the wrong word because you're writing him. But was there any point where that happened, where you're kind of going, wait a second? In the first draft or two, he wasn't an artist, which was, you know, it just seems strange because that's so central to who he is. But that surprised me that he became one and that it just seemed like such a natural fit that he would have this gift. Yeah, and it, it's really his defining gift and part of what gives him a sense of of being um, a worthwhile human being with somebody to contribute to the world. So I guess I was surprised that he became an artist, but I was also, in retrospect, I'm surprised that he hadn't been one from the beginning. There's a character named Tish, who is probably the second most important character in the book. And he's the one who rescues Wash, Washington Black, and will take him on these adventures until a certain point, which happens later in the book and different things occur. What's his origin and the decision to make him a scientist? You know, I was explaining that I was had been writing the Tichborn claimant story. And so the details of his milieu, his the class details, the details of what his household would have looked like, all of these came from that research about uh, Roger Tichborn. So he's very much got that background. But it just seemed to me like he... 
he wanted to be something more than just, you know, the dandy who loves to hunt, you know, the dandy who happens to be an abolitionist or something. He, you know, he's somebody who believes in progress. And this is something that, you know, comes to bear on every segment of his life. So he is somebody who's, you know, he's an abolitionist, which is, especially for his family, um, you know, just the most, I guess, the most far out and, and bizarre thing that, that he could be. But he's, he's somebody who's always constantly trying to push boundaries, scientific boundaries, social boundaries, you know, a, a progressive for his time. And then you thought, progressive scientists, why not? <laughs> Perhaps. It's hard to put your finger on exactly how these things come about. It just, it's very organic. The idea of a balloon as an escape mechanism, was that there early on? That was actually in the first draft. Yeah, it, it was. I'd been reading a really wonderful history of hot air ballooning uh, that I just happened to pick up, um, a Richard Holmes book called Falling Up, uh, because I had just read his I think it's called The Age of Wonder, uh, which is all about explorers and, and scientists. Uh, but, you know, it's a really remarkable book. And I remember reading a passage about a family who had gone over the Berlin Wall, like gone from the east to the west in a hot air balloon and had made it. And uh, I think that maybe stayed with me. And, and this is part of how it, it came about. Um, and my husband, who's a novelist, had also just written like a great big fat Victorian London novel, and he had used a balloon in that. He goes on several adventures and, of course, invents something himself. I'm going to ask around it, what is the actual history of aquariums? And I take it that the character, Goff, that he discovers, who's a scientist and a writer, is fictional, mm -hmm. but he must be based on someone. Yeah, so he's very... Very, very loosely based on Philip Henry Goss, who was the father of the aquarium, the first aquariums that people built and kept in their homes. Obviously a very different man. <laughs> very, <laughs> very, uh, you know, I understand Goss was just a you know, sternly religious man. And his son wrote a memoir in which he depicts his father as being quite a strict, brutal person. And I was curious about how we came to to have aquariums and and did quite a bit of research into that but also beyond that you know it's not it's not just the aquarium that is the project of Goff and and Wash it's um you know they're interested in terrariums and all of these these different things just presenting animals alive in a setting where people can come and and look at them it brings up a question there are elements that are never solved in this book had you answered them in your head and just didn't want to reveal it? Or did you kind of go, well, not everything gets answered? You know, I feel like I have answers in my head, but you know, I didn't want to put them in the book. I feel like there are things in life where people, I mean, the source of a rumor, we often don't know what the source of that rumor is and why should it be spelled out uh, in the book? Uh, and so I know that there's a lot that's kind of ambiguous or, you know, where we're left with questions. But I think that those questions are what people remember about a book when they're finished. This, this just sits in the back of their heads and they're, it's like a puzzle that the reader has to work out. A few more questions about the book and then I want to talk a little about your career. As you're working on the book and you're bringing in different elements, you choose to bring in a woman as a major character, which means you're going to 
also be seeing what it was like in the 1840s, 1830s, to be a woman in Quebec and later London. Were there any surprises that you found in terms of how she, the character Tana, is viewed by others? I think for me, the interesting thing is how she's viewed by her father, because she is really his chief collaborator, and she provides so much help with his research, and you know he, he essentially couldn't really do everything that he does without her. And he's an extremely progressive man for his time as well, in terms of you know his ideas. He has that kind of a speech about how you know he understands that maybe as an Englishman that his ideas about the world are not the best or the truest. And so he's somebody who's very progressive, but he's still somebody who sees his daughter as being on some level, she's just a woman, you know, and she's been, you know, teaching herself to do sketches so that he'll ask her to, to illustrate his tract. But, you know, he would never ask her. She's just a girl and, you know, these are her scribbles or whatever. So he has that dichotomy of being ultra progressive, but also being just so dismissive of this woman who's, you know, quite extraordinary. Was there ever a point where you wanted somebody to step outside themselves and do something different? And then you felt yourself kind of constrained by the fact that you were writing about that particular period? No, I didn't ever feel constrained really? by the period. Yeah. I mean, it's it's frustrating that she can't go into the world and, and become a marine biologist herself. And uh, But at the same time, you know, it's, it's inter interesting to show what it would have been like to be a woman with these talents and, you know, still socially constrained by, by all of this stuff. You mentioned as we started that you were looking at certain themes. How important are themes when you're actually working that first draft? Yeah, you know, themes are important in retrospect, I think. I mean... I don't think themes really, you're not thinking in terms of themes. It's like when you're in English class and the teacher says, what is the theme of this story? I think, you know, when you're on the eighth or ninth draft, you can start to see different strains emerging and different things that you're trying to work through in the text that maybe you hadn't realized when you started uh, were there. And then you can kind of play them up or, or play them down. Or How do you do that? Play them up? Well, it's all in, I guess, in the self-editing. You, it's how you in how you shape something, in in the emphasis that you put on something and and don't put on another thing. I guess it's just the art of writing. Uh, you were working on the first part on Barbados, and even toward the end of the book, there is mention of Dahomey. Was that kind of a vague word for Africa, or was it specifically the area? No, it was specifically the area, the Kingdom of Dahomey, uh, which I think it comprises like Mali and I'm trying to remember what the, the current countries are, but it's a it's an area of, of Western Africa that it was a great slaving kingdom. You did research. You went to, in 2007, you went to Ghana and met your grandmother, and you must have done some research. Had there been a point where you were wondering if maybe you would consider that area as part of the book? Yeah. You know, when I was, you know, doing my research into Tichborne, I was also reading, I read quite a few books on um, slave forts, the life of Englishmen who were living on the coast and living in these terrible places that they waited for slaves to come out from the interior. You know, and then I did make that trip back in, 
2007, or I say back, but I hadn't been before. I made the trip to Ghana in 2007 and visited Elmina and Cape Coast Castle and was just utterly horrified. But, you know, I, I didn't have the idea then that I was going to write about them. It, they almost seemed too big a thing for me to tackle. You know, I wasn't there doing research. I was more just, I guess, interested. There's a lot of writers who are trying in their own way to deal with what that trip was like. And I'm thinking August Wilson in his play, Gem of the Ocean. As we look on it now, it seems to be such ancient history. But at the same time, of course, we're dealing with an America where part of America is looking back on that as if that was a good time. I mean, when you're writing this, what's going on through your mind when you're reading the newspapers? Certainly it's a historical novel, and so there was a desire to depict that period as faithfully as I could. But I think a lot of people were, and I started to see this myself, you know, just seeing how the novel was maybe speaking to our times a little bit as well. You know, we're still dealing, obviously, with racial inequality and racial injustice and the idea that some lives should be privileged above others. You know, the sense of the foreign element as something to fear, it causes despair. But, you know, if I think about the history of the abolitionists in England and them coming together and deciding to end first the slave trade and then and slavery to abolish those, I mean, that's amazing to me that... You could come out of a society where this was something that you were very aware of, but that was just how things were. I think one parliamentarian famously put it, that slaughtering a lamb was a terrible thing, but the, you know, mutton was a very nice thing to have, and it's just how things have to go. It was, it's a terrible analogy, but, but this was the thinking. So for the abolitionists to have woken up and realized that this was something horrific and that human rights should be you know, universal thing, for them to wake up to that and then also to try and change the thinking of a whole society was pretty incredible. You know, I think we're seeing now that people are getting outraged about the lack of rights of others and the deprivation of those rights. And, and that's a great thing. You made a point in one of your interviews, and I didn't know this, that there was actually also slavery in Quebec during that period. Yeah, there was slaveholding. So there were people who had slaves in their homes, and this went on for hundreds of years. There were slaves in, in Canada, and it's, you know, it's not something that's um, widely acknowledged, but it's, it's there. Essie Adujan, your parents both came over from Ghana, and they met in San Francisco in 69 and wound up in Canada. How did they get into Canada? Why Canada? In the early 70s, Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister, and he was really encouraging immigration, in particular immigration of people who were very well-educated. Um, I think it was easier to come and settle there. So, yeah, my parents, once they had finished their schooling in, in America, just decided to move to Edmonton, and my father taught at the University of Alberta, and, and then they moved to Calgary. Was there much racism there when you were growing up? There's a lot of racism, I know, in Western Canada regarding Native Americans. I think racism in general manifests itself uh, differently uh, in Canada. It's just a, a different culture. I think I was quite shocked to come to school in, in Baltimore, you know, when I was 19 or, or 20. And, uh, you know, I was quite shocked by a lot of the racism that I saw because it was much more in your face, you know, not 
sort of tempered by a desire to be polite. That was interesting. But, um, you know, growing up in Calgary in the 80s, it wasn't the most progressive place. And, you know, the population of Black people in Canada has never exceeded 3%. And um, most Black communities are concentrated out East. And so, you know, there aren't a lot of, I guess, people who look like me out West or, you know, there wasn't at the time. And so, I, you know, I did experience racism and I think it informed the direction of my work, feeling as though I was, uh, you know, a little bit out of remove from everybody else. I think that that's why I'm constantly seeking out stories of people who are sort of the one among the many or who are at a kind of remove from, from the greater populace, I guess. Did you always want to write? Were you always writing? You know, I was always writing, but I don't think I understood that I wanted to be a writer until I was probably around 13 or 14. Uh, but I also wanted to be a visual artist. And so it was, I think, right up until the end of high school that I thought I could go either way. You know, I could be a painter or I could be a writer. And uh, I was encouraged to study at University of Victoria because they had a good writing program. So I applied to that and I thought I'd be a journalist, actually. I ended up in a poetry class with a man called Patrick Lane. He's one of our, our great Canadian living legend poets. And that just changed my thinking about everything. And I, I really, really wanted to be a poet. And I left the visual arts behind. And then I started studying fiction writing. And, and then that was that. Your books are historical fiction. Had that been something you were interested in all along? Were you reading a lot of historical fiction? You know, I didn't read historical fiction at all. I couldn't stand historical fiction. <laughs> so it's kind of strange that I ended up writing it. But yeah, I just get taken with, usually it's, you know, the fine print in a, in a book or something or like a, a footnote or something. And then I get very intrigued and then I look into the story and I really want to explore that and express that. I read a lot of horror books when I was very young. I read a lot of like R.L. Stein. And okay. these kinds of books, and then Stephen King and Dean Koontz. And, but then I started reading like a Margaret Atwood novel. After the first book was published, and I guess you had to just send it to agents, and somebody said, sure. <laughs> yeah, essentially that was it. Yeah, I, I sent it to two agents, and one said no, and one called me two days after receiving it. But your second novel did not get published, I read. No. I wrote a novel in between Samuel Tyne and Half-Blood Blues that is still sitting in a drawer that I will probably never publish. Uh, I was never happy with it. It's something that I think needs a lot of work and I'm not very interested in the subject matter anymore. And it was about um, a musician, but a classical musician. Uh, and then I moved on to Half-Blood Blues and I wrote that and that was rejected universally by everybody, except for in England. Uh, it was picked up almost immediately in, by Serpent's Tale. Was, I adore them. They're, I'm still publishing with them. I think they're a great house. Um, so they picked it up and they were always going to publish it, but it just could not find a home in Canada. And finally found a home at a small press called Key Porter. Key Porter picked up Half-Blood Blues, it got edited, and we came to a stage of produced advanced readers' copies. Uh, and then I got an email shortly after they'd done that saying, everybody here has been laid off, but don't worry, there's three of us left and we're going to do your book. And I thought, oh God, got to get the book out of there. 
they were maybe not as forthright as they could have been about what their situation was, but they had gone into receivership and eventually filed for bankruptcy. Uh, but I did get my rights back. And again, the book was sent out. And again, it was rejected. I mentioned my husband was a writer. And he approached his editor and said, will you look at this again? And his editor, probably rolling his eyes, said, okay, I'll, I'll give it another look. And uh, he started reading. And within three pages, he knew that he wanted to buy it. And then so he bought it. And then Shortly afterwards, it was on the Man Booker long list. Who was the publisher? It was published by Thomas Allen. Essie Dugin, I looked you up on IMDb and nothing is there. Has there been any interest in your books from people wanting to turn it into television series or films? So Half-Blood Blues was optioned a few years ago, but it never got made. And then Last year, it was re-optioned by um, a German producer who is currently looking, or he's hiring a writer to do the script. And so that will hopefully be made. And he has a great vision. Washington Black has not had any interest. Yeah. Could you see yourself writing a screenplay or getting involved at that level or no? You know, it would be a huge challenge, but yeah, I would love to do that. I think that'd be really interesting. Is that an interest that you want to move into anyway? I mean, have you ever considered plays or screenplays just generally? My husband and I were working on like a, a teleplay that we never finished <laughs> jointly. I, I think you, yeah, you start to get to a place where it's maybe difficult to write with another, but yeah, that would be interesting. Essie Adujan, now this book has come out. Have you begun working on your next? I started working on another one shortly after finishing the edits on Washington Black, because I think when you don't know how a book will be received, it's good to jump into another book just so if it, you know, everything goes pear-shaped, you've, you've at least started something else. And so I, I did start something else, but I haven't gotten back to it yet. It's been a bit of a busy fall. One thing about Washington Black that I found interesting is it's impossible to research and then write. You have to write and research at the same time. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. For me, I have to do a bit of research before I begin, just so that I know what it is I'm writing about. And that was mainly research about slavery that I was doing to begin with. But, you know, the things about the, the invention of the hot air balloon and the, the aquarium and the, you know, the drawing and all of this, this was stuff that I researched as I was writing. And it's, I think it's a good way to do it because then you're constantly inspired because you're finding out new surprising things and you can kind of tuck them into the book. You find serendipitous things that make connections that strengthen your book, totally serendipitous because it's kind of a picture puzzle that you never quite know what's going to go where and suddenly research tells you that. Yes, absolutely. You've nailed it. This is exactly what happens is that sometimes, you know, when you're writing a book, you're really open, your mind is really open, and you're, you're looking for things to take. And then you do find these little gems that you hadn't seen before. And then you can, you can use them, you can tuck them into the book, they can become huge leaping off points. Is there any example from this book? Yeah, thinking about the construction of of an aquarium style, like this was something that emerged very late in the writing and that I got so excited about researching about and and the octopus and, and marine life, all of that. I was just so excited to learn about it that it was great that I could turn around and then just write about it and have it be that immediate. 
And the other thing is sometimes when you do it, it takes you in a new direction in the book. So it wouldn't be something like that because mm-hmm. that's late in the book, but the, mm-hmm. but early in the book. Well, I think because you're constantly rewriting to find something that late in the book, is it's still very much something that can inform the beginning of the book when you go back to rewrite. So there's that. But I'm trying to think of, you're looking for an example from very early on. I guess maybe the discovery of him being an artist and then looking into some of the methods of what materials he would have been using to create these portraits of sea creatures. That was interesting. It's not really mentioned in the book. It's another one of the little mysteries. Somewhere along the line, he becomes a painter. He's an illustrator, and then he's suddenly a painter. Back then, to make an illustration, you can use, obviously, charcoal or... But also, I mean, to make an illustration is to use watercolors as well. He is, I think, you know, when he's with Titch, he is already using this method as something that he's learned from Titch. When you walk away from a book like Washington Black, some books come and go. They don't change you in some way, but some do. Was there anything in writing the book and researching the book that sort of changed you, you think? That's a very interesting question. Obviously, we know that slavery is a great evil, and but I, I don't think I really understood what that life would have looked like on a day-to-day basis, how horrific that would have been, and the mindset of being trapped in this, this kind of a life. This wasn't something that I had thought too deeply about, strangely enough. And I think having to confront that uh, with the research and also in the writing of it, having to depict it, Yeah, I've got kind of a new awareness of how horrific that was. And so I feel changed in that. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.